Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Peter's Fireside this morning. My name's Preston, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joyful day. It's wonderful to see you all. What a gift to hear you singing this morning. Uh, it brought tears to my eyes, so it's great to see you all. And again, welcome to all of you who are joining us online as well. Uh, we are glad to gather here today. Well, we return to the wilderness today in the, in the story of Exodus. Um, and before we jump in, I just want to slow down for a minute and take stock of where we're at in this uh, series. We're still in this barren place. Things are feeling a little bit different uh, in our lives, especially today as we're gathered together a little bit more normally. Um, but I just want to pause and say there, there are still, and maybe even new, wilderness areas uh, that we're encountering and that, and that you're encountering uh, in this time. So before we jump into our scripture, I just want to take a moment and have you check in with yourself and ask, okay, God, what, what, is, still, what is restless in my heart today? What, do I, what is an area or a place where I want you to speak into my life today? So just take a minute and let's ask God that, identify it, and ask God to speak to us today together. Let's pray. Living God, we come before you today and we thank you for the gift of your scripture and your story as we've identified places in our hearts and lives where things feel amiss, where we're wondering where you're at that feel like a wilderness. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to each one of us in those places this morning through your scripture in a way that only you can. We pray that you will take these words that are yours and speak them to your people profoundly today. Come, Holy Spirit, now. We do all this for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been wandering with Israel in the wilderness for five weeks now and seeing how God sustains his people. We've seen them coming out of Egypt and being rescued in the Passover celebration. We've seen the Red Sea rescue and God bringing people through waters. We've seen God's provision of food and water uh, despite the, the people's grumbling protests in the wilderness. In this next section of our series of the book, we enter a, a little bit different terrain. Moses leads the people now back to a place he knows well. He leads them into the wilderness of Sinai. Chapter 19 tells us this. It starts out, the people camped in the wilderness of Sinai in front of the mountain. This is the same mountain that, that Moses has been to before. Way back in Exodus chapter 3, God met Moses on this mountain in a bush that burned, but that did not burn up. Same place. And God said to Moses then that when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come and serve me on this mountain. And now that's happening in chapter 19 forward. Now this visit to Sinai in the, in the wilderness is really pivotal for the whole Bible, for all of Israel's story. And they're going to be there a long time in the story, about a year, actually. Uh, in, in the Bible, they arrive at the mountain in this chapter, Exodus 19, and they stay there for 59 chapters, all the way until Numbers 10. It's a long time. And at Sinai, the relationship with God and the people that's, that started way back with Abraham, way back at, in Genesis 12, uh, it, it deepens. It grows as God reveals more and more what his plan of reconciliation with the world is going to look like. 
And the stakes are raised too. This covenant that's been started is now made a little bit more clear of what it looks like. And God's saying to them, you, uh, as he said to Abraham way back then, you will be the father of my chosen people. Uh, you will be a light to the nations. And through you, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. And now here's how it's going to look. At Sinai, the people begin to understand what this is going to look like, uh, what it means to be set apart as a different sort of people, uh, to be a light in the world. And in fact, there's a lot of comparisons between what God does here in Mount Sinai and what Jesus does in Matthew's gospel at the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, uh, there's a, Matthew draws a lot of parallels for us that Jesus standing on a mountain and teaching the people in front of the Sea of Galilee uh, is connected to this to this story too. Both of them, God is telling, this is what it looks like to be my people. So for a different time and a very different place, God on Sinai speaks from a mountain and tells Israel what it's going to look like to live as his people, to be a light in a dark world. But we're not jumping yet to what that, those commands are and what it looks like. We'll get there. It starts with the Ten Commandments, which Lloyd will get to talk about next week. Um, so we'll get there. But first at Sinai, we have this picture of Israel's encounter with God's presence at the foot of a mountain. We see it. We hear it. We feel it in this story, don't we? It's dramatic. This is where the law will be given and the vision is passed down, but it starts with this dramatic encounter. It starts with people, people like you, people like me, uh, before a very holy God. So the question what we'll think about and explore today is this. What does it mean to be people who live before a holy God? What does it mean to be people who live before a holy God? Why does this matter? Well, first, we need to define that word. What does holiness mean? What is holy? I know it sounds a little bit old-fashioned, the word holy. It comes up in all different contexts today. But what does it mean that God is holy? We sing about it already today many times. What comes to mind for you when I say the word holy? Maybe it's, maybe it's something like adding an expletive afterwards. Holy! <laughs> right? It does. Or you may think of the Holy Grail and King Arthur's quest for it. And, and, and Monty Python's quest for it. That's what I think of. Or you may think of Justin Bieber's new hit called Holy, which is awesome. I love it. But it won't help us much here. It's true. It's a great song. Come on. <laughs> well, the Bible tells us that God is holy. It means that God is, is right, is pure, is perfect. That God is good in a way that nothing else is, in a, in a, in a categorically different way that nothing else is. Holy means that God is other than anything created. He's different. So when we say, for example, that we are called to live holy lives, or what Paul says in Romans 12:1, that we are um, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, holy means set apart for God. It means different from everything and anything else because it has a distinct purpose or end. And the purpose is for relationship, connection, and worship of the God who is holy perfectly good. Now, it's pretty obvious that the people of Israel and us are not holy in and of ourselves. We're not like God. We're not perfectly good. We're sinful, which really simply means we're not holy. 
uh, in and of ourselves. But as we'll see in this story and, and beyond, it's part of God's holiness, his character, to take broken things, to take unholy things and people like us and to make them holy, to make them bright and pure, to share his holiness, to, to give his holiness to them on us. So with this understanding of holiness, we'll, we'll go back to Mount Sinai. This mountain is a real mountain. It's in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. It's, it's serious wilderness too. You can go there today and climb it if you're a mountain climber. Some of you may have done that. Uh, it's called Jebel Musa in Egypt today. In Exodus 19, Moses gets a workout. He does some mountain climbing. He, he goes up and down the mountain at least twice, maybe three times. It's not a small mountain. It's not a small trek. And throughout his time there, uh, a year at Sinai, he goes up and down many times. Um, but, but the first trip we hear about uh, is really important. The first trip, uh, right, at, right at the beginning of chapter 19. Because on the first trip, God gives Moses really the main idea or the thesis statement, if you're a writer, uh, of all of the coming conversations at Sinai. He tells Moses what everything else to come is going to be about. This is the big point. And there is a lot to come, the, the Ten Commandments, and then what is called the Book of the Covenant, which is a lot of other nitty-gritty details about how Israel will live out their life with God. So it's really helpful to have the thesis statement that we get. And here it is in chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. The Lord called Moses out from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be three things. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, the second thing, a kingdom of priests, and the third, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So let's break that down a little bit. First, God says, remember, remember who you are. Remember that I saved you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagles' wings. I delivered you from slavery. You're saved. Remember and don't forget because it's this memory this burning memory of my love that sustains you and that defines you. That's who you are. But then in verse 5, uh, it, it, God says, Now, therefore, and when we hear this, we know that what is to come depends on what has just been said. So this is who you are. You're saved. Now, therefore, and we have some implications coming. Again, uh, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. So notice God says, if you will obey and keep this covenant that's been given, if you obey, which tells us that Israel has a part to play in this covenant, they can choose to participate or, or not. But if you do, God says, these things will happen. These three things or three roles will be fulfilled by Israel, and they all work together. They all kind of help define each other. First, they will be God's treasured possession. That doesn't need a lot of explaining, does it? God's treasured possession out of all of the earth. God says, everything is mine, but you, you are my treasured possession. 
I've rescued you from slavery. I've showed you that you're meaningful, you're valuable because you're mine, because I chose you first, not because you did anything. I picked you up and chose you. But second, there will be a kingdom of priests. Now, this is about how Israel will relate to the other nations, to all the other people in the world. As priests, and a priest in this context at a basic level is a mediator, a, a person who represents God to the people and the people to God. So Israel is meant to be a collective priestly community with a special task to reflect God's light to the world, to shine God's light to the world, a kingdom of priests. And then the third thing that they're going to be is a holy nation. There we have that word again, holy And this role, being a holy nation, uh, explains how they're going to be a kingdom of priests. The two go together. Israel Israel will fulfill their priestly role, reflecting God's life, by being holy. By being the nation that God chooses to be different, to be set apart and distinct. And the purpose of their being distinct is not isolation. It's not just to do their own thing over here. It's not exclusion but so that the other nations of the earth will see their holiness as a reflection of God, mirroring God, and then come to a knowledge of God. That's the point. That was a lot, I know. So let me sum that up one more time. God gives Moses this main idea of all of Sinai. It's this. You're saved. You are mine. I rescued you. I've chosen you, and I've called you for a purpose to reflect my love to the world by being holy just as I am holy. Right there at the beginning of all of giving, the giving of the law, which religion later becomes known for, right, the law, God dismantles how many of us were taught to think about morals. God says right there that personal morality doesn't exist. It's never personal. It's never just about you. God is about to lay out the Ten Commandments right in the next chapter, In chapter 20, which is probably the best-known moral code in the history of the world. Like, everyone's heard of the Ten Commandments, haven't they? But in this original context in which we get it, right here we learn that this way of living has a purpose. Well beyond being good moral people. Well beyond being just upright citizens in society. Well beyond being a good Christian. God teaches that this way to live, this holiness is for something much bigger. It's for his transformation of the world. And God invites us, he invites you to be holy, to be set apart, not for your own personal moral checklist, not so that you can quantify your goodness and then be able to sleep at night, not so that you can be satisfied with yourself and what you've achieved. God invites us to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, Because it's by that that God proclaims his goodness to the world. And this really matters because we say that at St. Peter's, right? Come and discover the goodness of God with us. Well, no one's going to discover the goodness of God with us unless we are striving and moving to being holy people, right? If someone came in and we were all miserable and mean and cruel to one another, there would be no goodness seen, right? (laughs) Because it's by, it's through our holiness that God shows to the world what his love looks like. It's through holiness that we as a people show that the gospel is real, that it works, that it's not just 
a nice-sounding idea. So holiness isn't about you being good at the end of the day. That's part of it. But it's for something bigger. It's for other people to see and experience and encounter God, which matters immensely. Right now, we're entering into a new chapter in our world for all of us, and as a church, too. Many people are weary and tired in our city, in our families, in our world. Many people are, going, are, are and are going to be looking afresh for a place of connection and a place of meaning and, and to, to, find, to find out the big questions of life. Who is God? Why, maybe why has all this happened? There's going to be a lot of wrestling in the next year after this barren season of human contact. And to live as God's treasured possession, as his holy people, in this priestly role for others, for the good of others, it will create space for others to encounter the goodness of God, which is what we're saying and which what is we're all about. Now, of course, we don't control the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will work as the Spirit will, but we are invited to participate in this way, in God's work. And this goes all the way back to Exodus, all the way back, that the people of God have always had this role. And do you know the first Christian who explained all of this, uh, really, most clearly, the first Christian, so the first person after Jesus? It was our old friend Peter. Peter, our namesake. He went through a lot with Jesus. He was a guy who was very aware that he wasn't holy, right? He knew his faults. He got them told to him over and again. Get behind me, Satan was one of them that sticks out. But later in his life, Peter is reflecting on Scripture, and even on this exact passage, uh, and he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9 to 12, Peter says to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, similar ideas, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to move towards holiness, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, Gentiles being non-Jews and people not in the community, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Do you hear it? It's the same idea that your holiness is for others. Morality is never personal. It's for others. It's part of God's ongoing work. The question I said at the beginning that we started out with, well, what does it mean to be people surrendered to a holy God? It means this, that we have an invitation to be holy, to be set apart as ambassadors of God's love for the world. So why are followers of Jesus called in the Ten Commandments and otherwise not to do things that many people see as commonplace? Cheat on your taxes, for example. And why are followers of Jesus called to live in a way that looks strange to others? Share what we have with one another. Give to the poor. Admit when we're wrong. Forgive when we've been hurt. 
These are very weird and countercultural things in many places. Well, if we live holy-looking lives just to avoid shame or just to get the affirming nods from others to feel good about ourselves, or even because we simply believe it's just the right thing to do, which is true, but still we haven't gotten God's full picture, his full intent of it. We live holy lives because it's God's way of healing and restoring the world. I'll say it again, morality is not personal, it's communal, it's for others. So my decisions are never just about me, but about the person that they make me, about the Preston that I will be, and how that person will serve and engage with my family and my friends and my neighbors and all of you. It matters. A, a, a guy told me a story not long ago. We were meeting with a couple guys, and he was saying he was at a bachelor party, and at the end of it, a couple of the guys were going to a strip club afterwards, and he had this moment of like, I don't want to feel weird, but what do I do? I know this isn't wrong. I know this is wrong. And he just kind of said, no thanks, and went home. And when we do things like this, he was saying it in a way of like, oh, I wish I had said more about my faith in this moment. It was kind of a it was struggling. I wish I had been more clear. Um, but whether he did or not, right, he, he made this decision to abstain from something that was seen as normal and acceptable by everyone else. And when he does this, it's one in the community where he told that story. It's a witness to the other Christians, to the other men saying, you're not the only ones. You can do this too. You're not alone in these struggles. And someone else is actually doing it and standing up for what they think is right. And we need that, right? We need to hear that others are living in a way that is different. So it's for, for the good of the community, but of course also uh, for those who are watching the outside world. God is looking for people like this who are willing to risk lives of holiness, to live differently, to do these deep work, to the deep work of character and these small decisions that they may feel small at the time, but they're not. These things stand out in the world and God uses these moments and people who are, who are willing to move into them to shine his light through the world. It matters. We need brothers and sisters around us who are willing to live holy lives. We need the encouragement, the solidarity. As Peter says in, in chapter 1, we are strangers and aliens in the world. That's the language he uses to describe the church. And we need one another. And the world needs it too as Peter finished, so that others may see God's good works on the day of his visitation. That's the goal. Others glorifying God, encouraging one another, and, and others coming to glorify God. But how? I think this leaves us with a question. How are we supposed to do it? How are we meant to live these holy lives? Let's go back to chapter 19 briefly. There's, there's a lot more in it. Uh, the, the thesis statement is important. But it leaves us with this question. The Israelites weren't holy as they were, and neither are we. Now these people, the people of Israel, they're about to have a physical, embodied, terrifying even, encounter with the living God in front of this mountain. God instructs Moses on how to prepare the people for this encounter, and there is, a, there is some preparation to do. In verse 10, uh, God says to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and get ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on the mountain in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care 
not to go up on the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. With beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. So Moses went down and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Now, this is not a come-as-you-are in your jeans and sipping your coffee situation, is it? This is intense. Moses is meant to consecrate the people, a ritual preparation. They had to clean up. They had to wash their clothes, I assume take a bath. And then when God comes down on the mountain, they must stand at a distance, right, behind barriers, ensuring that no one touches the mountain. And if one does touch the mountain, they're supposed to be put to death. And a trumpet blast will be the cue, a loud trumpet blast, that they're then supposed to approach the mountain. And then the scene is described in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud and, and, and a loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And when Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of a trumpet blew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Creation groans in this scene. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's a thick cloud wrapping the mountain like smoke. It quakes like a kiln. The mountain itself trembles. All the people tremble. A trumpet blasts. The people approach the mountain, marveling at all this. They're terrified. Midway through chapter 20, a little later, we hear more about how the people responded to all this. In verses 18 to 20, this is after the, the Ten Commandments, uh, it, it, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. It's kind of a weird thing to say. They were terrified in this scene. Wouldn't you be too in this moment? This encounter with God strikes fear in their hearts. But let's look for a minute at Moses' response to the fear. Again, he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. It's a paradox. He says, Do not fear. Don't be afraid. God is putting the fear of God before them, and that will keep them from sin. So they're not supposed to be afraid, but they're supposed to have the fear of God before them. And this fear of God before them will keep them from sinning or will make them holy. It's a paradox. Yes, it is. We, uh, one, pastor, or one person recently said, we, we don't have to be afraid of God, but we are meant to fear God. I heard this story not long ago of a pastor who had had a great moral failing. We hear these stories too often, don't we? 
He really messed things up and had to be removed from his ministry position. And a younger pastor came and asked him, when was it that you stopped loving Jesus? What happened? When was it that, you know, everything fell apart and you stopped loving Jesus? And this pastor, uh, broken at, the, at this point, responded, I never stopped loving Jesus. I never thought I stopped loving Jesus. I just stopped fearing God. Holiness here is linked to what Lloyd called a few weeks ago a sacred fear of the Lord. A sacred fear. We are meant to fear God. It's part of our relationship with Him. It's part of loving Him. We must fear God. It's the only right response to a holy, right, pure God. An awe-filled fear. A sacred fear of the Lord. And this is what the book of Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom. A sacred, holy, awe-filled response. It's when you realize how big and how powerful God is and how small you are. But it's still a paradox. We are to fear the Lord, but we don't have to be afraid of Him. We are to fear the Lord, but we don't have to be afraid of Him. The New Testament insists on this. We don't have to be afraid of God. Like the people standing in front of the mountain, I think they were just terrified in every sense of the world. We don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to consecrate ourselves. We don't have to wash our clothes and approach God's holiness at arm's length, not touching the mountain lest we die. Because we have been consecrated by the blood of Jesus, by his death. By his death, he has given us life. God doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see my sin or yours. In Christ, you are reconciled to God. You've been moved from the world of death to the whole new different world of life. It's a whole different place. You can enter God's presence with joy and thanksgiving. And you don't have to be afraid. You can enter in with joy and thanksgiving and you don't have to be afraid. This doesn't mean we trot in casually and not think about it. And finding the middle ground here is where we seek to live. We don't have to be afraid of God. He doesn't see us as our sins deserve, but we do fear him. We do respect God's power and greatness and majesty. And we marvel at his plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And, and, and the Spirit works through this sacred fear to make us holy. That's where we started this, holiness. That's how the New Testament lays it out, is working. The Spirit works through this awe and reverence and experience of Christ to purify us, to make us holy. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 extensively reflects on this story, this exact story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but it's a helpful perspective. The writer says that we haven't come to this mountain the Mount Sinai, with blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, with all the harrowing messages that even if a beast touches the mountain, they must be put to death. We don't come to that mountain when we come to God now, where even Moses himself trembled with fear. Instead, we come somewhere different. We come to Mount Zion, which is the home of God, the heavenly city made available by Jesus Christ, the place where God is, who's, who is the mediator of this new covenant that invites all of us in by his blood, whose blood allows us to enter into the holy places, 
even the holiest of places, without fear. So we can come before the holy God because we are consecrated by Jesus. We are made holy by his holiness. We're invited in to live holy lives, to join God's work in the world. And fearing the Lord isn't opposed to this. It isn't opposed to, to loving and being loved by God. It just deepens that love. It makes it more real because we know and we can rest in the fact that we live protected in the presence of a fearful God, but a good God who is good to the very, to the very end. Will you pray with me?